Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with B.J. Miller and Shoshana Berger as they discuss their new book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, hosted by Steve Heilig. Welcome to everybody. A lot of familiar faces, and it's great to see new people. You are now part of this cult that we call Commonweal, <laughs> but it's a benign and very good cult. Yeah, you, you say that at the end. Yeah, you just heard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... We've been doing, uh, as Oren noted, a lot of programs for through the years, and this one was one that a few of us cooked up as a way to have these kind of gatherings and have presentations on a wide variety of things. And a lot of them are related to commonwealth work. We do environmental things and healthcare of various kinds, and some of them are just uh, philosophical, and uh, we have had artists and musicians and all kinds of things, and it's really great and really fun. One of the themes that's come up partly by design and partly by default in these new school talks, and they are, most of them, at least for quite some years now, are archived in podcasts and video casts on the Commonweal website. You can find them. And there's a list of themes you can click on, and one of them is end-of-life issues. And we've had a lot of great presentations on that. And this is something that I talked about doing when we first started doing these talks here. And it's, a, it's interesting to observe the change in time in our culture on this because when I landed in San Francisco to finish training at UC in the 80s, there was the explosion of the HIV epidemic and a lot of uh, mortality, death and dying going on. And it was very clear to me that this was something that people hadn't talked about that much, even within medicine, but also just in the greater culture. And so the way, one way you could kind of biopsy that or look at it and see is that if you went to a bookstore and looked for books on death and dying, there was no section on it. And there were a couple of books that were in psychology usually, like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, one or two others. Now you'll find whole sections and all kinds of uh, discussions out there, which I think is a cool thing. And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that, I suppose. One of them is the demographics of a population aging particularly those that I'm a part of. So it's one of these okay boomer things, right? <laughs> you know, let's talk about death, you know. <laughs> but it has a great uh, side effect of making people look at what's important in life. Um, 30 or so years ago, there was a huge survey of Americans, Gallup poll, and they asked, what are you most afraid of? And the top three things that came up were, number one, public speaking, <laughs> number two was death, and number three was talking about death, right? <laughs> so here we are, <laughs> and uh, the speakers we have here today have different perspectives that they came upon to do this great project, we might call it, that is embodied in the book downstairs, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living, Life, and Facing Death. So when I was reading this, being a, uh, an okay boomer, um, <laughs> it reminded me of a book I hadn't thought of in a long time. And that was when I was a kid, and a lot of you, I believe, too, and I was here in California coast, almost everybody drove Volkswagens, VW Bugs and VW Vans. You could buy them for three, four, five hundred dollars and drive them into the ground. But if you wanted to fix them, there was this one book, and it was written by a guy named John Muir. 
And he was, in fact, the descendant, distant relative of the John Muir. But this was the guy who was an engineer trained to Berkeley, dropped out, and lived in New Mexico. And he wrote a book called How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive, A, Complete Gu a Guide for the Complete Idiot. <laughs> and what it was was a very practical, knowledgeable book that went chapter by chapter on all the kind of issues you'd face in this, these really troublesome little cars but also laced in with a lot of philosophy and stories and jokes and even kind of cool little drawings. So I'm reading through this book, and I'm thinking, this is kind of like the John Muir book for the end of life, you know? And it really, um, yeah, so you look it up, you'll see. It was, it's still in print, 19th edition. There have been millions now. I rebuild a Volkswagen van using that book, you know? And it would say things like, well, if the car is too hot to touch go sit on the corner and smoke a joint and come back. <laughs> it was that kind of book. This one doesn't say that, but it's close. Uh, kind of. So, <laughs> so what I want to start with with you guys is two of you from different backgrounds and how you got into not just writing this book, we're talking about that, but BJ's story is well known, but I, want to, I know some of you haven't heard it. Um, in the briefest form, like you did in the book, what brought you to doing a book like this and getting into this field and go in whatever order you wish? You want to start? I'll start, sure. Um, so I guess mm, we could start a couple different places. Uh, I mean, personally, I got involved in medicine, um, not because of any love of medicine at all, but because of... Uh, I had benefited from it. You know, I had been a patient. And I got to see how amazing medicine was and how just unbelievably, ridiculously horrible it was, too. So both something to be inspired by and something that saved my life, as well as something to go participate in shifting. So that was a way into healthcare. Um, and that professionally landed me pretty quick into this field of palliative care because I was very interested in um, subjectivity. I was very interested in the limits of control. Um, these things which are sort of against the point in the rest of healthcare. I, um, so that took me into palliative care and that took me into hospice work. Um, so that's kind of one angle in. Another angle in was really my experience. So I had electrical burns in college. That's what landed me as a patient. Um, and in that experience, being uh, in a burning unit for a few months, you have a lot of thoughts. And uh, one moved me towards studying art. And when I went back and studied art, back to college and studied art, it's a feeling, feeling like that would be very relevant for this new body um, to sort of think creatively about it. And um, there was an experience there. I was looking at old statues, old Greek statues, missing body parts. And I remember just thinking, ah, we're all sitting here looking at these sculptures and we're not talking about the parts that fell off a thousand years ago or something else. We're still admiring these sculptures, missing parts and all. And they weren't incomplete sculptures. And that was a very therapeutic moment for me. And there was another moment just like that studying modern, modern architecture where they started to celebrate the material, not covered up. Like Louis Sullivan started to reveal the material, to celebrate the material. And that changed my perspective to my, my prosthetic legs. These weren't simulations of something I lost. These were something in of themselves beautiful in their own rights or, you know, powerful or, or useful or something in their own right. And I stopped comparing myself 
to the way I used to be and started getting into the way I was. And there was that kind of thinking that led me to deal with things, all the things I can't change, like the facts of death. And it's that sort of attitude that brought me here. And then one last thing to say was, you know, I was working with IDEO when I was with the Zen Hospice Project, and we are working together with IDEO, the design firm, in a bunch of different ways. Um, but that's where, that's where I got to meet Shoshana. And that was a really exciting time for me because here was, we were trying to pry this subject out of the medical world. And here was this amazing place filled with very creative, thoughtful people asking for it. Whereas the rest of the time, you know, you present this material, a lot of people, and they run away from it. And these guys are actively getting into it. So that was sort of the setup. Those are how things that came to be. And then Shoshana, one day we were, oh, there's, I guess there's a lot to say to our origin story. But I just will say for now, that Shosh came up to me at one point. We all realized that there was a need for some basic fundamental material in one place. That you can get it piecemeal all over the place. But there was so much suffering going on in the world around just a basic lack of information. Um, never mind pain and sorrows or other kinds. This is unnecessary uh, because of inaccessible information. So that's so Shosh came up and said, hey, let's write a book together. And I said, okay. Um, partly, because, <laughs> partly because we knew there was a need for a book. And I guess what all this is circled back to is also particular to Shoshana asking. It felt really important to have a clinician but and, and a non-clinician. A patient, a caregiver, you know, it helped. It felt very important to have a couple different angles. And also, Shosh knows how to do things like write, which I didn't know how to do. So, and we had had quite a lot of experiences together, just as people marinating on a subject and being vulnerable together. So, anyway, it felt really right, and I said immediately yes. Yay for me. <laughs> so, yes, so when I met BJ, um, I was about three months out of having cared for my dad, who had dementia for about five years. And it was a very, very hard and um, attenuated death, watching someone lose their identity. Um, and I had just started working at IDEO, too. And so this whole new world of design had flowered for me, thinking of not design like a shiny object, that makes a sound when you drop, but how do we design experiences? How do we design our lives? Um, and so all there was this great confluence at this moment when I be, met BJ of all of these things swirling in my head. And I love that you brought up this guide about driving your Volkswagen, uh, Volkswagens for idiots, basically. Um, because, you know, we thought, maybe we should call this book Death for Dummies. <laughs> I like, something like that. Um, because... I, that's kind of how I felt being a caregiver to my father. I kind of felt like a big dummy. I felt like the whole experience was profoundly undesigned. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what kind of care to, um, to pursue or what I could expect from the medical system. I had no idea what questions to ask both his doctors or him about how he wanted to live out his last days. We are so profoundly underprepared for this experience. And, um, and I thought to myself, if I'm having this much trouble and I have a graduate degree, there's a lot of people out there who need help. Um, so when I met BJ, we were in this crazy brainstorm together at IDEO. IDEO is the kind of place that likes to like create this a lot of pageantry around important and hard conversations. So we actually built like a death yurt within our offices. I'm not kidding you. We actually built like an igloo-like structure inside our offices. 
About 10 of us came in from the Embarcadero through this narrow passageway into this yurt, and we had a candlelit conversation about how we wanted to die. And there were some pretty grand visions. Um, these are designers, mind you. So people imagined, you know, being on an iceberg in Iceland with like, you know, Zarathustra booming. Um, people had playlists. People had the whole room ima imagined. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is nothing like what it looked like to be with my father and sit with him as he was dying. It was a very quiet experience sitting in my sister's old childhood bedroom just you know stroking his head and whispering into his ear and trying to scramble and find some Yiddish folk songs I could play for him because I knew that's what he would want to hear um, and so I was thinking how do I square these two visions and I kind of locked eyes with BJ and I think he could feel the regret and confusion that I had and um, there was just like instant trust. I felt instant trust. And so <clears throat> we worked a little bit on that TED talk together and then on the back of that, which went kind of crazy beyond your wildest imagining, I bet. Is it 12 million people have watched it now or something? Yeah, it's like crazy. That? That's, if, that's called going viral, but, but beyond. No, bacterial or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, your TED Talk went bacterial. <laughs> that's amazing. So, um, so yeah, that's how we came to write the book together. So let me ask kind of the philosophical background question for this, and we've talked a bit about this. There are now a lot of books out and so forth, but backing up to what, if you were trying to encapsulate the elevator speech since almost every religious and faith tradition in, uh, that humans have come up with counsels that awareness of one's own mortality is very important for various reasons. So how do you see this? What's the primary benefit of acknowledging this fact of life? 25 words or less. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been, by the, you've been bit by the Twitter bug too, right? Yeah. Um, uh, ooh, can we go first or shall? What does that mean? You got something on your mind? Well, I just, I'll just, I, I don't know if it's 25 words or less, no. but I'm actually just reading Frank's book, The Five Invitations Now, and um, he talks about how being in relationship with death informs how you live, and that's that has very much been my experience. I think you talk about that a lot. The idea that... Um, if you are in relationship with it throughout life, it changes the urgency with which you live. And I think, you know, we've heard many people on the road with this book come to us and say, you know, there's this cliche of the gifts of cancer. Like, you know, when you have something that is forcing you into a sense of a timeline and a trajectory, it, it does change the urgency with which you live. And so that, that's what I would say. Yeah, I guess mine's a version on that too. I think I think if you look at, I think one of the ways we know the U.S. is a young, as such, as a young culture, as a young society, is the way we deal with aging and death. It's our tell. We keep treating them as though they're kind of a you know, you know, um, signs of defeat or something that you could keep at bay if you had only thought positive thoughts or ate or the right veggies or whatever else. 
And it, that implication gets kind of smeared all over us. And then and you watch so many people feel like embarrassed to be dying or ashamed to be sick. And it just breaks my friggin' heart. Like not only to be depressed or sad or in pain, then you have to be embarrassed to feel like on top of it. It just, it drives me bonkers. And there's no, nothing in us is trying to make death easy in this book. That would be really Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a rich experience too, and it does have this thing of as a foil for the rest of life that just makes can make beautiful beauty pop and all sorts of beautiful things happen. Um, so I guess in a, coming along, so I guess we're trying to work on behalf of of our society, roping death into its field of view, roping death into its idea of reality, not the not the antithesis of life, but part of it. I think that's one way to put it. But more, maybe more tactically, I think the book is just basically going to help you make make it less difficult and more meaningful in a, in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So that's – sorry, I usually have one of these on too. But um, that's the next question basically. So as I mentioned, there's now a shelf of books out there. There's a lot. I know you guys didn't want to write another one that repeats otherwise. So what is different and unique about this one to your – I think, I mean, I think uh, this, um, you know, the subject, you can put anything into the subject. It, it's a big, big abyss and it, 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 it fits everything. Anything and everything go in it. So you can project amazing amounts of stuff onto it. Um, and it, it is a fascinating, I mean, another, I guess another impulse is like the, yeah, the subject, our mortality is just way more fascinating than we treat it. The idea that we have to, we have to learn to love this life even while we're losing it. It just, it's a real, it's a mind bender. Um, it's a powerful challenge to be a human being. Um, and so I think there's all sorts of fantastical things to think about it. But what, what felt like it was, felt like the world needed right now was something pretty darn practical. Like in one place, you can think through what advanced directives are, estate planning, right next to the, some of the, psycho- the psychological and social and emotional issues that go with it, and not force the reader to choose, do I need practical stuff or do I need emotional stuff, or just kind of lay it all out in some distilled way that's not pretending to tell you everything there is to know, because we don't know, um, but make a lot of space for what we don't know, but also point out the things that we do know. Um, that's the basic gist. And so I guess in a word, this book felt much more practical than others that we had seen. And and at least an attempt to be to speak to something of a common denominator among people, whatever your religion, your sex, your age, your wealth status, whatever. For example, um, my son, who's 12, was really constipated this week, just to overshare for a minute. And I was like, oh, yeah, we have something on constipation in the book. <laughs> and so I actually went back and read it. But we literally set, set out to think about the entire experience from very early on. Um, you know, when you turn 18, many people don't know that as you become a legal adult— Um, HIPAA laws are such that your parents can no longer see your medical records. So if you go off to college and get in an accident, God forbid, you know, doctors really are not supposed to show your parents your medical records, which can be very complicating when you are, you know, unconscious and your parents want to weigh in about your medical treatment. 
Um, so, you know, from that moment, we advise that, you know, when you turn 18, you should really um, have your parents be your healthcare agents. You should sign that, that documentation. Um, a power of attorney for healthcare or an advanced directive, even at that point. Um, we talk about creating a when I die file, which is literally, it can be a shoebox, it can be a file, it can be a cloud drive, but it's a place where you put all of your paperwork, you put all your passwords, you put all the stuff of life that you've accumulated so that when you die, the people you love aren't forced to go through this horrible um, accounting that most people end up doing when they lose someone, which is that they have to find all of those passwords, find all of the accounts, go through this slog of shutting down a life. You know, it, it took my sister and I two years to do that for my dad. Um, and he was pretty organized, but still there were bank accounts and things that we, we had to deal with way past, um, you know, the horizon when we were imagining we would have to. And this is all when you're like in the thick of grief, having lost someone, and then you have to get on the phone with Verizon and sit on a phone tree for three hours, right? It's like pouring salt into a wound. Um, so we go through a lot of very practical stuff in this book, how to prepare yourself um, in terms of the paperwork, how to prepare yourself emotionally, how to have the conversations, the tough conversations you need to have with people in your life to ask them the questions I didn't know how to ask my dad about, like, if you lose your, lose your cognitive faculties, if you, if you can't recognize us anymore, if you can't read the paper anymore, does that still feel like a quality of life to you? You know, do you still want to hang around on this earth for a while? if you can't do all that stuff. And I didn't know how to ask those questions. So we go through a lot of that practical stuff in the book. A lot. That's, that's, you can see why the first chapter is called Don't Leave a Mess. Yeah. Right? And let me tell you the rest. Let me give you a flavor of this. So it's Don't Leave a Mess. Leave a Mark. Yes, there's paperwork. Can I afford to die? Then dealing with illness section, I'm sick, taking stock, now what, coping, breaking the news, and love, sex, and relationships. Then help on the way, hospice and palliative care, symptoms 101, hospital hacks, as in hacking, getting in there, getting dealing with hospital. Help, I need somebody, care for the caregiver. Everyone dies, how to talk to kids. It's your body and your funeral. This is when death is close. Can I choose to die? Final days. And then after the first 24 hours, grief, how to write a eulogy, an obituary, celebrating a life, and what's left. And as with the uh, car manual, a lot of really practical information gleaned from experience and training, but also it's it's very directly stated and um, almost like a conversation I, the way you, you guys have written this, which is a deceptively easy to read, that kind of stuff. Any writer will tell you to make it sound conversational and very direct is actually the hardest thing to do. So you, you guys are great at that. And then, but each of the practical things is, has a very human philosophical side to it as well in some of these. And you can tell your stories come from experience. So really great book, you know. So... I want to ask him directed to you in particular because I know you were in the middle of this and I have been too. Um, within healthcare, within medicine itself in particular, um, 
it's a subset of the generational shift in a sense is that we were talking before about movements and so and debating it a little is there a movement within medicine to deal with this in a more humane informed way now the specialty that you're part of and that is described in here palliative care is part of that what does that really mean how does that come out in for people who are confronting uh, terminal illness or at least the possibility of that in healthcare. Well, so have you guys all heard of palliative care? Yeah. Has anyone not heard of palliative care? I think you should give it a quick description. Okay. Um, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to define this field. I mean, most of the definitions, if you go online, they're two or three paragraphs long. It's kind of tricky to define. But essentially, palliative care is the team-based approach to quality of life and the mitigation of suffering, you might say. Trying to make the hard stuff less hard, the good stuff more good, basically, is the gist. Um, and then hospice is a subset of that kind of care. So palliative care, one of the problems we have in this field is that everyone conflates it to, and so people think of palliative care as only relevant at the end of life. Um, but that one of the things to really get across, guys, is you don't... You, I have patients I've been seeing for 12 years who are nowhere near death, um, but they may still be suffering from the effects of serious illness. So palliative care is just trying to wrap, just wrap their arms around folks who are dealing, trying to cope with serious illness, period. And then a subset is hospice and end-of-life care. Okay, so that's how they're related. Since 2006, it's been an official subspecialty of medicine, and it's officially called hospice and palliative medicine. Okay, so that's, that's, this is all very new stuff, even though the subject matter is ancient, and in some ways it's what healthcare has ever concerned itself with. The way healthcare has gone in the last 170 years has meant that a subspecialty, this esoteric thing used to, had to come along to point out the obvious. You know, it's, sort of, it's very telling about where the healthcare system is that requires this exotic field to point to the basics. But here we are. That's, that's the truth of it. So in some ways, the, the, the primary patient of this field of palliative care is the healthcare system itself. A lot of us, if we have our way, we're trying to drive these principles deeper into schools of medicine, nursing, social worker, and chaplaincy so that you don't need a specialist to, sit, to be able to sit and talk to you about things that you can't control, um, et cetera. So that's happening, but it's a very, the healthcare industry and institutions that feed it, the healthcare education stuff is all complicated and moves really slowly. So just so you guys know, that's happening. Um, but I wouldn't wait around. We should not wait around for the healthcare system to enlighten us. It's, it's, on, on this stuff, it, it's usually the other direction. Patients and caregivers are the ones who are really doing most of the teaching for us clinicians. Um, so, so that's one kind of comment, Steve. Is that's what's kind of helping in help, going on in healthcare, and there is that is a real movement. You know, there is a different that is a different lens. The rest of healthcare is focused on the disease. We're focused on the person dealing with the disease, and that's a really important distinction. So have hope in this, that the system is, is, is letting these thoughts in, and there's sort of an infiltration model happening. So now you'll meet surgeons who have palliative care training, for example. Um, so it's spreading out. Stay tuned. But the more interesting work, or just as interesting or bigger work, I think, is among us as society, as a culture. And I don't, so a lot of us, we were talking earlier, as Steve mentioned, a lot of us were wondering, is there a movement here? Because it feels like for a lot of us, there's a lot of energy in this thing. There's something that we all know needs to change, that we're all struggling more than we need to. Uh, and we're more isolated than we need to be. Because the thing that's isolating us are these very universal experiences. And I'll sit in my clinic and I have one patient after another tell me how lonely they are. 
Um, and, and the thing that's isolating them is this very normal thing called illness or this very normal thing called, you know, death's coming soon. And the way we're wired right now, those, those things have the potential to unite us somehow are dividing us. And so there's, there's, that's a tell, it's an indictment on somehow we're handling this subject, how we treat ourselves and each other when we're suffering. Um, there's something here for us too. And I also believe that if the healthcare system's really gonna, really gonna change, it's, a lot of it's gonna come from pressure from the outside. It's gonna be us patients telling our doctors what's important to us and not waiting for them to ask, et cetera. So um, maybe if there's a central, central movement, we kind of mentioned this a moment ago, but if, there is a, if there's a central message, message for us as patients, as the public, um, maybe it has something to do. I would love, I would love your, uh, your thoughts on this, but maybe, maybe it has something very simply to do with it's on us to push back these reductive tendencies that keep narrowing our sense of reality, push back on those and sort of demand that nature is part of human nature, mm-hmm. that death is a part of life, et cetera. I mean, I think if we kept, sort of state, articulate the right capture for all this, then there won't be so many, are you inside or outside? You know, are you part of the group or are you outside of the group? Well, if we have the right catchment, we're all in. Mm. And that, I think, is a central message, a central charm of our mortality is that, you know, this we say this in the book, I can't say enough. It's like 100% of us go, that we all have this in common. It is nothing to do with failure. You will not fail at dying. It is the one thing you will inherently <laughs> succeed at. There should a lot of room for reassurance on this. Um, and let that be this thing that unites us, hard as it may be. We all are dealing with it, so let's come out of our closets on that. You're listening to a TNS conversation with B.J. Miller and Shoshana Berger. I used to say when I was teaching in the medical students that life is one of the very few conditions that has a mortality rate hovering at 100%. Yeah. <laughs> the last time we checked. Yeah. Um, again, still in, in healthcare. So... This manifests often, as you know too well, with an inability to give up on trying to fix it. Yeah. Right? So, it, you know, with hospice care in our nation, it's getting better, but in our nation, among other Western and developed nations, the stay, length of stay in hospice is much shorter. Other places, Europe, Japan, Australia, they're much better at realizing when they're not going to fix it and they should go to a palliative model. So here we tend to have people for a much shorter time and it's more difficult to work Mm -hmm. what you're trying to do with hospice care and everything. So how do you change that fundamental problem of getting the professions, healthcare Mm -hmm. professions, saying doctors, but it's all, it's, you know, to realize that there is a limit and that they should go sooner to a curative instead of a curative model. Mm Are we teaching younger students now, and they get it? Yeah, you know. But old dogs and new tricks is really hard. You know? Well, it's really tricky. I mean, it's really you're, you're right on. Um, I mean, there's a lot to say about this. One is the truth of it. Too. I mean, let's um, not accidentally shame ourselves by shaming the shame around it, because there's something we are wired on some level. We are wired to run away from anything that threatens our existence. You know, there, we have hormones that flow through us in a millisecond. You know, there's it's just there's some there, there's something very real about that too. So you see, 
sorry. You see that kind of these these these, especially in a stressful setting like an ICU or whatever, you see these sort of basic human impulses playing out. And I don't want to belittle those; those are real. Then you have the problem of uh, clinicians not being very well educated around how to have conversations with people, how to sit with people suffering that they can't change, how to how to note the limitations of their craft. Doctors classically will tell you that that's very important stuff, but they're not trained how to do it. So no one's very comfortable having those very uncomfortable conversations. A lot of patients, you know, the the you know, here we are all together. You guys came out for this talk, but there's something we have to acknowledge too. There's a fair amount of denial around this subject, and even those of us who think about it a lot, when it comes our time, I mean, the hospice world is filled with clinicians who have spectacularly difficult deaths because. Then it's very easy to seduce yourself by thinking about it, by talking about, oh, when it's my time, I'll be fine, I'll be at peace. Mm. Not necessarily. Mm-mm. So, um, so you got, so you got uh, these sort of social layers, these constructs where we don't have a language. It may not be polite to talk about these things. So you have all these forces that, that collude to keep the subject out of the room a little bit. And I see it play over out again and again in medicine. And doctors will go into these come to these meetings with very well intended to say, I'm gonna really, we're gonna really talk about the whole cold hard truth. We're gonna really, and the patient won't allow it. Mm. You know, I've witnessed so many, I so many experiences where I've heard from a patient, that darn oncologist, he never tells me the truth, he never, and then I'll go to the oncologist and, I'll say, and he'll say, or she'll say, I've told, we've had this, I've tried to have this conversation 15,000 times, look at the record, I just put it in the chart, and they just won't hear it. They just can't hear it. And you hear these stories all the time. So it's not so easy as doctors suck and patients are amazing. It's, not, it's really not that easy. There's something all of us that kind of keeps this stuff at bay, or we kind of half talk about it, we squint through it. So we, conv- like we convince ourselves we've actually addressed it when we barely scratch the surface. So all that stuff is playing out. And then you throw in these sort of systems issues. And you know this is a policy issue, too. I'm sorry I'm going to bore the hell out of you guys. It's a big question. But there's a policy how healthcare gets reimbursed. The incentives are incredibly perverse. That's what a, the Affordable Care Act was meant to help us do, is to start incentivizing quality, not just doing more stuff. And uh, but we're still stuck with this fee for service. Just keep doing more stuff. That's what we'll get paid more. Patients want more stuff. We want to give them more stuff. We're going to get paid more. So why you know, in the heat of it, that's just going to wait. It's just the way it's going to play out again and again and again. And then the last point I'll make uh, is, and this is why I think the reason why this book was we felt important. Like like we're saying, there's a room for a ton of reassurance. You will get through this. You will find your way to the grave. I promise. But, and I don't mean that sarcastic. I mean, really, you will. Don't worry on some level. Um, But we have this sort of modern overlay of a healthcare system whose technology is very impressive. It is amazing. And every year we try to catch up with it. And by the time we kind of catch our breath and find a time to meet, some new gizmos are out. And so if we're waiting, I guess from long stories, if you are waiting like in the old days, in the old days, maybe being 30 years ago, well, look, I'm going to fight as long as there's something to try. And then when there's nothing left to try, then I'll yield to this fact of death. Then I'll accept it. That was a very reasonable, that's a, that makes sense to me. The problem is now the list of things to try is inexhaustible. So if you're waiting for that list to run out before you turn your attention to the fact, the idea that you're going to die at some point or your loved one's going to die, that's a grave mistake. You will distract yourself all the way to the end. Um, and so that's why we have, to, we have to overlay this new ability for us all to triage these decision moments together. You will be, if you're waiting for that doctor to say, now's the time to go get your affairs in order, that's not likely going to happen. 
so we have all these pre-dead people here today. Um, <laughs> what would you, I mean, distilling this down, so coming right out of that discussion is the advanced directive talk. So what are the two or three most important things you should say to somebody? Listen, if you're gonna, no matter how old you are and where you're at, what should you be doing now ahead of that time, practically? What would they be? Questions you should ask the person about their end-of-life care, their end-of-life plans. Is that what you're asking? I mean, anything. What what would you, you know, most people, most of us are, like you say, in denial about this and aren't going to do things. I mean, mean, you'd mentioned with doctors, I used to do surveys and talks and the doctors had the same percentage of them who had done advanced directives Mm -hmm. as the general public, which was about 20%. Yeah. And these are people who see sickness all the time. Yeah. So there's denial about it. Yeah. Breaking through. So beyond, I, I'm, I'm going to assume and hope that that's one of them is look into advanced directives for healthcare. However, you know, however you want to, sure. which ones you say. But what else? Yeah, too? and 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 by the way, that's not an easy conversation, right? And so, another thing we do in the book is we talk about how do you get into that conversation with people. I mean, the, you know, what BJ was just talking about, where the doctor says, I've been trying to have this conversation with the patient for ages and the patient doesn't want to have it. And the patient's saying, I want him to be honest with me. He's not being honest with me. There's this great anecdote about the family saying to the doctor, don't tell him he's dying. He can't handle it about, you know, grandpa. And then grandpa's saying to the doctor, don't tell my family I'm dying. They can't handle it. You know, so it's, it's um, I think in some ways we're just talking past each other. Um, and I can just say, you know, having written this book, I've been very activated around this conversation and desperately wanted to have it with my mother, who does not have an advanced healthcare directive and is 78 um, and not in great health. And so, you know, I kept trying to sit down with her and say, Mom, you know, I'd really love to talk to you about, you know, how you want the rest of this to go. And she would just ignore, walk away, deny, change the subject. Can't we talk about something more pleasant? Um, and finally, I, I sat down with her and I said, you know, Mom, I would love to hear some stories about your childhood, about how you grew up. And then we were off to the races. I mean, she talked. I just turned on my phone recorder and she talked for hours about what it was like to be a kid growing up in the Bronx and her first crush and where she went to school and the day she got lost. And that became our way in. And then I was like, God, it's so amazing for me to hear all these stories. I didn't know any of this. Now can we talk about what are your hopes and dreams for the rest of your life or what the rest of your life might look like? And that became a kind of side door to talk about some of this stuff. Um, And there's some very practical things you have to get down to. Like, do you want artificial nutrition? If, you know, do you want life-extending measures, which is what you're going to check off on your advanced healthcare directive, right? But those questions point blank are not a point of entry, uh, is what I've found. You know, you got to kind of ease your way into the conversation. Um, and so we do suggest some opening gambits in the book for how to, how to talk about it. And it, it's not easy to imagine. It's not easy to forecast forward to a place where you are not capable of making decisions for yourself. Who wants to go there, right? 
Um, and, you know, even having this conversation with my own husband saying, you know, I need to be able to trust that if I have the same, share the same fate that my father had and I lose my cognitive functioning and I can't recognize you and the kids, I want to be able to trust that you're going to allow me a natural death by not giving me curative measures if I get sick, you know, so if I get pneumonia or a cold or a flu, I, I don't want to be treated at that point. Um, and that's a really hard decision to make for someone you love. It's really hard to not give them the medicine that they need when you love them and you don't want to lose them, right? So, not you know, it's not easy. And I think we're all going to find our own ways in. But um, I do think that we, we have found some side doors that we talk about in the book that are useful. Yeah, I could add to like you just even more tactically. Like if it, probably if you had to pick one thing an advanced directive can do is to name your healthcare proxy, the person who would speak for you if you can no longer speak for yourself and self advocate. And that, that's a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Yeah, right on. Um, so I guess we're going to say one sort of very basic thing to go do on your checklist. I, I, that would probably be it. Because all the defaults in the system, even with well-intended folks in the system, the defaults are going to always be to the ICU, more tubes, more. The, the medical idea of, uh, of the worst-case scenario is death. Um, but we all know that there are some fates worse than death. Um, but as an organizing principle, that's how it's wired. So you can't. So if you can't advocate for yourself or someone can't advocate on your behalf, you can so easily end up down these chutes that you, many of us don't want to be on. So that's a big, big point. Um, I would say also to Shosha's point, these, these conversations, you know, there's not, like, you don't have them once. Our minds change. What any of us is willing to live with and what we're not willing to let go of, you know, that's a, this is all very dynamic over the course of a life. So you don't have this conversation once. You have it over time. And not only because your mind might change, but it also takes some of the sting out of it. It becomes, then you're a little bit more familiar with this conversation. Each of you has a more chance to think about it and come back from a different way, a different angle in your family. You So get routinize it. Uh, once a year, maybe, the holiday time. Or, you know, if you're dealing with a diagnosis, a change in status. So if you go from, let's say, a stage 3 cancer to a stage 4 cancer, that's a really good moment to kind of revisit the realities of what you're looking at, for example. So get in that habit. And I'll say one more thing about it because it's because it's just darn interesting. And it's another reason to have a proxy is so there's so as a disabled person, one of the things that's very interesting is how when I was in the hospital, I, I, several of my mom's, my, my parents' friends approached them and su- sort of suggested that they let me go. That I that wow. it would be so horrible for me to live with these burns and missing body parts, and that they would be doing me a kindness by letting me go. It's so funny to hear. I would go see these guys at a cocktail party later. It was so, so weird. Anyway, the point was, I mean, of course, that was then. That was there. I, I didn't take it personally. Um, um, but my point there is like, you know, imagining what you'll feel like someday in these shoes that you can't imagine is it has its limitations. Yes, empathize. Try to put yourself in those shoes. Think about it. Amen. That's important. And know the limitations of that. Until you're there, you may not. You may feel very differently. 
And you know, there's there are data around this in the disability world. Like there's some study, like if you of ER docs and nurses, if you were, you know, when it got an accident, you're quadriplegic, you're brought to your own ER, would you want your colleagues to save your life? And with some like 85% are like, hell no, I don't no, I'm not living like that. Now ask 80, 85% of quadriplegics who would never have guessed that they could live in that state after they've become quadriplegic, 80, 85% of them say, you know, I'm really happy to be here. I wouldn't have guessed as much. So there are limitations to what you can imagine. All the more reason this is a dynamic, like think of this as a dynamic, think of this as changing over time, and that's why that proxy who knows you can help sort of extrapolate from the truth of you into these new shoes. That makes sense? Yep. Okay. I'll have some one more one more thing to say. Because <laughs> you're asking a very good question, Stephen, about like just down and dirty, practically speaking. Um, so yes, advanced directive, yes, the proxy. Um, I would say two more things. Within the advanced directive world, there's a pulsed form. So if you're seriously, if you're living in advanced age or with advanced illness, there's a pulsed form. It's an acronym, Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Look that up. Most states have laws in the book. Unlike an advanced directive, the pulsed form is signed by a doctor. So it's a medical order. Because right now, you can do all your advanced directive. It doesn't necessarily mean the hospital's going to honor it. There's a lot to say about that. But a pulse form, you have legal protection. So if there's, that's a really important form to have and have it very accessible. So if, like a lot of us was coach, if you're living in the throes of advanced illness, put, a, put that on the refrigerator in case the paramedics have to show up. They'll see your wishes right there. And it's a doctor's order. They're protected. Last thing. You know, the big, huge source of suffering at the end of life or around illness is it's extremely expensive. And families are going bankrupt all the time. Healthcare costs are the number one cause of bankruptcy. So... Take the time to put your stuff in a trust. Keep your poor heirs out of uh, probate court, court and things like that. So just financial planning, we can talk more about it. But I, this, I have to note, that's one of the major ways we really suffer in the end. Mm-hmm. And just getting everything into a trust is also a form of suffering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going to the bank and making that happen. It's yes. a really nice thing to do for your heirs. Yeah, um, yeah and on the, the post form, it actually is a... I helped write that thing for California, and and so it's it's kind of it's designed to stand out. It's kind of the color of BJ's shirt here in paper, but it also goes into the, your what is now the common most common electronic medical record. So it would follow you around yeah. if you're changing your yeah. you know main we providers. Heard this amazing story when we were researching the book about this guy who actually tattooed <laughs> DNR on his chest, and had a massive coronary, came into the ER, and they ripped open his shirt, and there they saw DNR, and they had this this ethical crisis. Do we abide by what is tattooed on his chest and not resuscitate him, or do we not? And they ended up not resuscitating him, and there was this whole ethical quandary around it. Um, And I think the ethics board determined that they had done the right thing. They had, you know, done a human-centered thing and abided by his... Yeah, it was reported. And then they found the DNR later. They found the actual right. DNR. There's later. been a couple of these have been reported a lot in the medical literature. But one of the big arguments one of the nurses made was, "What if those are his initials?" Right. <laughs> right. A girlfriend. Right? Yeah, a mom. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to. You know, you have a great chapter on fear, and not just fear of dying, but just fear of what's happening. You, you, you have the great. 
a quote that maybe unfortunately now it's Woody Allen, but is I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be around when it happens, you know, <laughs> which which is really true for a lot of people. But the most common conception is that people are afraid of pain at the end of life. And uh, what's actually been shown through like surveys and just direct experience is mostly a loss of control, whatever that means for you, you know. So part of it is these advanced directors having some control of things, but what else can people do in terms of mindset and practical stuff in terms of taking control? Um, yeah. Well, you're right. So one thing that's interesting, so you guys know about the end-of-life options act, the sort of medical aid in dying. Um, in, uh, in our state and along with six or seven others, you know, you can legally obtain a prescription for medicine that's intended to take your life within the context of advanced illness. I mean, and there are parameters around it, but it, that there's, it's a very interesting, it really flummoxes the healthcare system in all sorts of interesting ways, although it's really gaining momentum and acceptance. Um, but that was the point, I guess the point there was, um, oh, from, so Oregon was the first state in 1997, and a lot of data coming out of Oregon about how this law, how this law has played out. And one of them is, just to Steve's point, uh, that a huge chunk of people who actually get the prescription, go through all these steps, get this lethal prescription, never use it. Um, and that the realization simply is that, you know, it's just really nice to know you have this parachute in the medicine chest. If things get too nuts, you have a way out. And that's the, that is the therapy, knowing you have that way out. So... Just confirming what you're saying, a big thrust for all a lot of this is uh, is control. So you know, I think it's a really useful thing to to, to look at your fear around uh, well, about anything. Um, fear can tell us a lot. It can tell us a lot about what you care about um, and a lot about what you want. Um, but I would say it's, I found it very useful to divide when folks when fear comes up around death. It's, there's Again, this is maybe a little bit overly convenient, but it works. Are you afraid of dying, of the pain and suffering you imagine is, is sure to happen? Because that, that's, you know, we know a lot about the dying process. Um, and we, there's, I can really reassure you that, no, you don't have to, not necessarily, you're not going to be in miserable pain necessarily. There's a lot we can do. Not, not 100%, but there's a lot we can do to help you be comfortable at the end of life. And you don't have to have a miserable experience in your final moments. Not necessarily. And that's something we know. Now, there are a, lo a lot of us have this sort of fear of being dead. It's something much more, it's much more interesting, much more existential, philosophical, spiritual, like being, non-being. I mean, this is, this is big, monumental, wonderful, beautiful questions. So a lot can be lurking in there. But very often when you open that up with people, well, sometimes, you know, sometimes the, what pops out is, you know, someone I've been working with, bless you, is a person of faith. You know, sometimes they're afraid of dying because the judgment day is coming, they, they, they think, right? And then once we kind of uncover that, then it's very easy. My prescription to them is to go spend time with their priest. It's not more medication or something. It's a very, it's a very useful thing to kind of ferret out and to help them direct their time. Um, sometimes it's a fear of missing out. You know, and what is that? It simply just points you to all the things you love and how hard it is to imagine a world with that, that's going to keep going without you. That's kind of sad and hard. Excuse me. Um, but really underneath all that is, if you're asking this question, what you're afraid of, and you realize it's all these things that you love so much that you're going to miss, well, if you're asking this question, you still have time, right? So it, that can be a really... Uh, 
galvanizing moment for people to realize where their priorities should be. So as an example, that's a really, that can be a very useful path. Um, so anyway, on like that, there are ways, you, you, the fear around mortality is, is begging us to actually come closer, to actually look at it. It is a, it is a very rich zone versus uh, a lot of fears. The, 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 the prescription is to run away, go the other direction. You're afraid of a snake? Go, you know, leave the snake. Uh, this is very different. This is asking us to go in, and this is where we need support. We need help looking. This is where psychedelics can be very powerful at the end of life, for example. We're getting to that. Okay. <laughs> Goody. Uh, this is more for, for Shoshana. There's a chapter in here about dealing with kids around the topic of death that I thought was really great. Um, 25 years ago, I wrote a grant proposal to actually develop a curriculum for teaching kids mm. about death. And I actually got to the last, it was a big one, wow. foundation back east, and they flew me back east. I got to the last round, and then I was rejected. And I finally ran into one of the board members. Sometime I go, what happened? Why didn't I get it? And he said, you, you really kind of freaked them all out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't talk to kids about this stuff. So Aww. you have this great thing, and you also have a beautiful letter you wrote to your daughter in here. So, I mean, mm. do you want to say, you know, when children are in the equation in a family or children themselves or young people who are dying with some advance notice. Yeah. What is, you know, advice there? Well, we had, um, we had amazing advice. We talked to someone who specializes in um, talking to kids who, was, who had a pediatric focus. And, um, you know, it's, kids can handle so much more than we think they can. And we try so hard to protect them and to swaddle them and to um, keep them innocent. But the fact is, is that they see death all over the place, right? Like they see maybe their dog dies, grandma and grandpa die. And if we're not honest with them about the fact that we all die and this is just a natural part of life, they will fear it more. And so um, we have this little book within the book called Eight Questions Kids Ask. And they ask questions like, can I catch cancer? Um, you know, I was mean to grandpa last week and then he died this week. Am I to blame? Is it my fault? So just being super honest and brave and sitting down with them and saying, look, honey, people, people get tired and sick and their hearts stop and this is a natural way of life and um, it's not your fault and we're all sad and it's okay to be sad. Um, you know, bringing kids to a funeral, there's a lot of question about that. Should you bring kids to a funeral? And again, it's just about preparing them, you know, there will be a body inside a coffin. The body will look like it's sleeping. You know, grandma will look like she's sleeping. Um, there's nothing to be afraid of. You can touch her if you want. And just normalizing it, you know, making it feel like it's just a part of the fabric of living. So that was, it was really great to um, be able to do that. And we have this wonderful illustrator, Marina Luz, who brought that whole section to life with these beautiful drawings of animals taking care of each other. Um, so that was a real joy. And then the letter I wrote, thank you for bringing that up. The letter I wrote to Cleo was, um, again, as part of thinking about this when I die file and kind of compiling all of your things. It's the idea of 
what would it feel like to sit down and write a letter to the people you love, um, knowing that we have no idea when we're going to go? Like, I could go out there and on my drive home, not end up coming back home. You never know. So I sat down with this woman named Frisch Brandt, who's a good friend of ours, who is like a, a letter midwife. She just coaxes, coaxes it out of you. And she just asked me questions. What would you say? What would you say to Cleo, um, who's 13? And so I just told her and I, I spoke it out loud. Um, and she took 10 minutes and she typed it into a letter. And I now have that letter with my will and all of that stuff. So, you know, if something happens, Cleo's going to find that letter. She'll probably read it in the book before she finds the letter. But, um, probably not. <laughs> Kids don't read. Um, nobody reads anymore, sadly. Um, but anyway, it, it gave me a great peace of mind to know that I had said those things in writing and, and that she would have that. I didn't ask you this before, but I'm actually moved to ask you. I mean, it's short. Would you read it to us? Oh, sure. <clears throat> Cleo, you are incredibly strong and can weather anything. In your life, there are likely going to be times when that strength is challenged. You may feel... Let's see if I can get through this. I'll read it if you can. Okay. Um, you may feel like the world is testing you, doubting you, perhaps doesn't see you the way you see yourself. Remember this. You are capable of anything. You can see the world as a series of open doors. If you can see the world as a series of open doors rather than closed doors, there's nothing you can't do. I learned my bravery from my mother, who never heard the word no. A crazy matriarchal spirit comes through our line. There is art in there if you look for it. Your great-grandmother, Paula, could take any misshapen lump of clay and draw a spirit out. You will carry that forward. As a child, I felt like I was being chased. And you have that same fear. There is some value in that fear because our time is not unlimited. And in a way, we are being chased by death and have like five minutes here. So do all you can. Sometimes I feel like our family had a lot of strife. I worried about it. I worried about not modeling well what a loving family could look like. Sorry, guys, I didn't realize this was going to do this just today. <clears throat> I hope you know how deeply your father and I love you. Cleo, we are on a small blue marble in the sky. Look up, and as all-consuming and overwhelming as life may feel, remember that we are just a small part of everything. Life is a really grand experiment, and I have no doubt that you are ready for it. Sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry to spring that on you, but no, it's, okay. it, it's I thought it was so beautifully done and it contains so much that and it shows the spirit behind this book. Thank so you. 
You're listening to a TNS conversation with BJ Miller and Shoshana Berger. Let's come back to the, uh, uh, the much simpler issue of drugs. Um, <laughs> BJ mentioned this. So I happened to pick up down at the uh, little book exchange here downtown, Marin Magazine, which is usually about real estate and food. That's about it. I mean, and but it has this whole article in it. It just shows how this is spreading called Free Your Mind. Once taboo, psychedelic drugs are being rethought as possible remedies for PTSD, depression, and addiction, which is true. The interesting thing is, is one of the key things that it's being looked at is for dealing with end of life, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, coming to grips with mortality. Um, put on a conference last June about this at UCSF that sold out and the first ever clinicians, I'm sorry, that's different, but um, there's all sorts of stuff going on in this now. And I know you've been directly involved in looking into some of the research on it. Um, What is the application or the ideal that we're looking at for using this in the context of mortality and dying? So, yeah, you know, there, I had not been aware. I mean, there's, Huge history, not just beyond our own 1960s history with psychedelics. I mean, there are plant-based medicines that go back hundreds and thousands of years, etc. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to pick up on of existing knowledge, and this is not new. But as we're newly revisiting it in a sort of a medical context, and so so far, Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCSF, um, there may be other institutions in there, but. Um, these places have revisited uh, research, uh, specifically with psilocybin and also MDMA, but psilocybin is probably leading the charge right now. Um, and vis-a-vis our context, like you're saying, Steve, there is there are data now to support, and it's probably maybe three to four hundred subject uh, subjects have been tested. Um, a single dose of psilocybin with two psychotherapists as guides with some specific music and an iPad and an eye mask on. There's a, there's a whole process and set and setting is very important. There's a meeting before you take the drug and then an integration meeting afterwards. But with all that effort, uh, just a single experience um, has been dramatic uh, for folks who were gripped by death anxiety, living with illness and terrified of death to the point where they were just incapacitated. These are not folks who are just trying to get their jollies. This was not... Um, these are folks who are really struggling. And then single experience with this f- mushroom and came out of it completely feeling part of the, you know, f- part of the cosmos, part of the world around them, completely losing their fear of death. The dissolve between, and this, this question of fear of death brings us up, is the, the distinction, the barriers between ourselves and others. It turns out we're, no one's autonomous. You know, we're very porous beasts and there's life's in and around us all the time and these experiences just kind of show you that prove that and so out of the backside of this one-time experience with zero adverse events none and then they would ask these folks a year later or six months later and the the their their sense of belonging and their lack of anxiety remained to just one trip so it, it's astounding. We in medicine don't have anything else like this to offer, this sort of existential fear. The closest we have would be we'll smother you with a wet blanket. We'll give you Valium or something to just, you know, like just quiet your brain. 
Um, but we otherwise, we don't have much to offer this major thing. that I think the Existential fear, existential anxiety, I think, is probably the most common complaint if we articulate it as such in any clinician's office. And so here we have this ancient route, this non-pharma route that can do a, a ton of good. So it's really, really exciting. Um, and it's happening now. Uh, so we're in phase three of studies and it's coming online. Um, I wouldn't imagine if it's, uh, you know, in the next maybe five years, three to five years, we're going to see some effort to get the FDA to approve these drugs. So there's some really interesting stuff going on. Um, this is what we have in common with the Volkswagen book, smoke a joint, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. eat a mushroom, and mm-hmm. it's but, all don't, but be don't a, drive. But don't right. drive, yeah. eating mushrooms. Even a VW. <laughs> Even. Um, you know, I just, we haven't really touched on this more specifically, too. We're talking about drugs, but so the legal ones, prescription drugs. We talked about pain. Uh, this country is in the midst of a huge uh, drug problem related to medical use, partially, but with opioids and so forth. And the balance clinically has always been, a, you know, the fear of addiction, which is they say in psychedelic retreat. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if you have a comment on how do we deal with that? I mean, at the end of life, it's not supposed to be a problem. You're supposed to be able to use whatever you want with patients to treat pain and distress because addiction isn't going to be an issue, but it does impact. It hovers over healthcare and over the practice. And do you see, has it been improving in that regard? Addiction, how we handle it? Not addiction, no, treating pain Uh, in end of life in particular. No, in some ways we're going backwards, I have to say. Uh, Yeah, sorry. Um, In some ways, there was a... So I, I had my own experience as a patient. I had all sorts of pain, as you can imagine, from electrical burns, including this mind bender of phantom limb pain, which in the early 1990s, that was considered a psychiatric phenomenon, not a physiologic one. So that was no fun. It was no fun to have these horrible sensations and someone sort of look at you like you're either crazy or sort of pat you on the head. I mean, it was, and it was very normal for anyone, very normal to have your pain second-guessed. And it's a really miserable experience. Then in the mid-90s, I can't remember his name, there was an anesthesiologist who was a pain researcher who sort of came on the scene and suggested that, you know, that no, that medicine really had a duty to take pain seriously. A lot of doctors had found a way to say, well, pain, you know, pain's part of the disease. I'm going to work on your disease and that's, that's what I can offer you. Your pain is sort of a consequence. It's not my department kind of thing. Again, if you're focused on the disease as a system, that's what you're going to get. If you're focused on the person dealing with the disease, you'll get some out. Um, so uh, with some new data suggested, sort of the anesthesiologist pushing this idea that pain became the fifth vital sign. So as important as your blood pressure, your pulse, your temperature, would, are you having pain? And this was felt like really, this felt like evolution in action. This felt really great that people were going to take pain seriously and, and medicine was going to address it. And so it did to some degree. And then all of a sudden what, what, the, what that looked like was basically we loosened the grip on our prescription pads and just started pushing opiates pretty freely. Yeah. And we all, uh, and we were pretty convinced that, that was a good thing to be doing. The sure pain opiates had a, had a downside, but if you're really treating the pain thoughtfully and carefully, that most of the time you're going to, you weren't going to run afoul of addiction. And if you did, there were things to do about it was basically the idea. And whatever those things were, the old days of ignoring pain, that's certainly worse. So we all felt like we were in some improved path until we realized we weren't. Um, and the, the evidence mounted that the whole communities were just being decimated by this, this lax attitude towards opiates. And a lot of the, the, a lot of these drugs 
were in the form of pills and they were coming out of doctor's offices. And so then now we're in this moment in the last couple of years coming to terms with that fact. And unfortunately, it feels like what medicine is doing is going back to this very clunky fix, which is, no, actually, pain isn't important anymore. Sorry, we're not going to treat that pain. Um, and so we're, we're the pendulum's swinging back in a pretty unenlightened way, and it's and it's really terrifying. And what I can say, one of the reasons, one of the ways clinical medicine has become very difficult. Uh, if I'm prescribing uh, an opiate to a patient, the amount of hoops I need to jump through, my team, my staff, the administrators need to, the paperwork, it's so obnoxious. And then you'll get to a pharmacy, and the pharmacy may not stock, may not mm-hmm. stock it because they don't want the liability. Mm-hmm. And if even if they do, they will find some way to make you, the patient, feel like looking at you suspiciously, like, what do you need morphine for? You look fine, you know, and just, oh, we're going back to the shaming. and uh, So, trouble. All I can say, I'm not. I'm, I'm really worried about this um, right now. And the upshot will be pressure on researchers on the system to come up with other routes to treating pain, meditation, other kinds of medication, more specific kinds of medication. You know, if you look at overall research funding in healthcare, probably less than one percent of research dollars have anything to do with uh, researching things about how you feel, mm-hmm. your experience, including pain. Um, so, you know, maybe this will put pressure on us to uptake the research that goes into the science of how we feel. Mm-hmm. And we I heard hope. we heard from caregivers, too, how difficult it is when you're desperately trying to get an opiate for your loved one and they won't refill a prescription, you know, mm-hmm. because you... You've, you've used it too quickly or, you know, they're concerned about abuse. So, you know, you're calling the pharmacy over and over again. You know, I need this medicine. My, my loved one is in terrible pain and it falls on deaf ears. So it's terrible for the halo of caregivers, yes. too, who are trying to get that pain medicine. I will say it's a nice plug for hospice. So one of the many reasons to go on to hospice when it's time is you get to sidestep a lot of that, that, cl- that clerical junk. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a hospice can go can bring those opiates to you, for mm-hmm. example. So there's a nice there's an upshot here for once you're on hospice to avoid a lot of that junk. So you guys wanted to do a little bit Q and A, if yeah. there's some. Okay, so let's try that now. Oh. Questions for our speakers. I want them to be questions, not. Speeches, please, because we can get a bunch of people in here. But anything's fair game, I think. Yeah. So please go ahead. Okay, I guess it's me. I'm sorry. Ah. Sorry, excuse me. I'm going to. I want to know if in your research you found another culture that had a really enlightened approach Mm. to death Mm. and what that might be. And if we could, if you could tell us what it was and we could go study that culture and Mm. see. Because obviously it's a real cultural phenomenon around death that so anyway that's my question mm-hmm. mm. yeah there's so many examples um, that wasn't the specific focus of this book but we certainly came across a lot of it um, you know first of all in the treatment of the transition and this big life cycle moment is it could it be a more celebratory moment you know my friend who grew up in Singapore said there were you know huge parades and fireworks displays when someone died it was a celebratory moment we see Dia de los Muertos and how you know you celebrate and honor your dead and it's it's a it's a 
you know, a celebration of, of our history and our legacy and, our, and the people we've lost. Um, and then just, I have to say, I, I, I moved to um, Denmark for a year right when we finished writing this book. And boy, are the Scandinavians enlightened about treating people with dignity at the end of their lives. Um, they are much more liberal, liberal about allowing people to have agency in whether or not they want to live anymore. Um, so that aid and dying idea is, is much, more, um, much more in the actual patient and person's purview. Um, and just a sense of not over-medicating. Death is not a medical event. We are not going to try everything. We are going to treat you as a whole human being who has spiritual needs and a family relationship, and this may be a group decision. We had a really interesting um, experiment where we wrote an op-ed about um, someone who wrote a whole... Uh, Steve's... What is Steve's... Um, oh, the prognosis prognos declaration, yes. yeah. Yes, prognosis declaration, um, where he and his wife wanted to have more control over how much she knew about when she was going to die. Um, and there was there's a series of questions, this is an op-ed we wrote for the New York Times, um, about how much you actually want to know about how long you have, which is a decision. And why shouldn't people be able to make that decision for themselves rather than having it foisted upon you? Um, and, and that's something that, you know, he's trying to advocate for here. There are, there's so many people and so many actors in this movement that we're trying to start who are trying to move the, move the wheels on this. Um, but, yeah, there are so many cultures to study out there. And um, I did love the Scandinavian way. There is a fabulous book called the Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, oh, yes. <laughs> which became a bestseller, which is crazy. Um, but it was a, I think, 75-year-old, 80-year-old Swedish woman who wanted to just go through her house and clean it up and tidy things up before, um, before the end of her life. And she was doing that as a gift to her family. And she writes about it. Yes. <laughs> So I um, have had a stage four diagnosis for about five years and have been given different times. Like, you know, then it was less than a year to live. Then it's, well, maybe you're in the five to 10 year co cohort. So I've had to deal with that idea of dying for a long, like a good long time. And I've been very open about it. And I found that some of my friends have been responding, like just they've kind of disappeared. A lot of friends have been much stronger and wanting to hang out. And I've been sort of like, yeah, let's carpe diem, let's go do stuff that's fun. Um, is there something, a psychology book that I could read that sort of like reach out to those folks in my life who have sort of disappeared or are avoiding, you know, because it is, like you say, it's the most, you know, feared thing. And people just don't like to talk about it. Well, there is, I mean, Frank's book comes to mind, The Five Invitations, as a way to help people find some way to a relationship with the subject. So ostensibly, they don't need to run away because they don't know what to do. Um, so I, Frank Ossoseski's book, The Five Invitations, especially if you come, if you're um, partial to a sort of a Buddhist approach. Um, so that one I highly recommend. Um, 
specifically to friends, though, I wonder if there's one that we could think of. Let me think on that. If there's one that's, that would be really good to give to your friends, um, we'll think about that. There's that great card book, Carrie's book, about... But couldn't we talk about something? No. No. Oh. no. Things to say to people? Yeah, I've seen that. You've seen that one. Yeah. I don't know who wrote it or... Is it things to say to people? Yeah. It's all about, like, what you say to people when someone's died. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I trust you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We'll think about it. Let's see if there's... And we have a resource... This is not to plug the book. We do have a big resource section at the end of the book that includes a bunch of other materials and stuff because this is stuff I don't remember. But, yeah, and there actually is a bunch of stuff in our book about this very phenomenon where people run because they just can't... They can't contemplate it. They're scared. They feel awkward about knowing what to say. Uh, you know, there's so many layers of um, fear and and self-recrimination, actually. People don't know what to say and don't know how to deal with it. Um, so we do, we do talk a lot about, there's a chapter called Breaking the News, which I imagine you've had to do a lot. And it's all about how that's received and to prepare yourself for how it's received, because not everyone can receive it. Yeah. There's one down here, and then here. Um, this will sound like a uh, hypothetical question, but it's not. Um, um, if you met somebody um, today um, who told you that they were in uh, intractable pain, um, and that they were going to end their life in exactly six months, they give you the exact date, exact time, mm. um, does not qualify for end of life um, under California law. They're going to do it themselves. Um, This is in a state, incidentally, that still has a law on the books that says anyone who encourages, advises, um, or assists a suicide is committing a felony. Mm. So what would you do? Mm. What would you say to them? Mm. Sorry, you're getting stuck with this one. Oh, that's a doozy. Um, Tell them to move. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking, but it actually has happened. It People have happen. moved to other states. But was your question implying that they don't have a terminal illness per se and they wouldn't qualify in those states anyway? They wouldn't, they wouldn't qualify under any state. Right. Uh, right. Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. And you're in a position of not being allowed to encourage or assist. Right. Well, I think I would... <sighs> As a physician, you know, I have an oath, and I think I could deal with the law. I may be naive, but I think I would, I think what I would do is sit down with that person, and my, what I'm trained to do is to open up, like, what's behind that question, what's behind that impulse, because sometimes you're met with folks who have a very compelling vibe around them, that they're ready to go, that this is not pathological, that they're done, and they need your help. Um, but there's so much can be lurking behind the request to hasten one's death. Is it untreated depression? Is it family pressure because they're a financial burden? Is it they've lost meaning in their own life? They have no sense of purpose and haven't had found help uh, to repurpose themselves, et cetera. So I, at least what I would do, I think, is sit down and open up that question, talk about all that's behind it. And I don't think that would, I, and if that was caught, if that, someone thought that was encouraging anything, I would, I think I could fight it. 
And beyond that, if I really, if we landed in this place that there was a very durable, thoughtful request in there, and it wasn't just a failing of a family system or a healthcare system, et cetera, that they were really serious and this was true on face, what they wanted to do, what would I do? I mean, oh man. I think what I, you know, if I got to that place where I had real confidence in this person's request and that there wasn't untreated stuff, I can't remember what they've called themselves now, but the Hemlock Society split into compassion and choice, as I understand it. Compassion and choices, which is sort of the policy piece that's above board. You'll see them advocating for end-of-life options act in various states. And then there was a second arm, I don't know what it's called. Well, there you go. Final Action net Network. Final Exit, Final exit net Network. So this is a folks, this is underground. These are folks who will help people end their lives. Um, and I don't know if my telling someone about the existence of this network would constitute something illegal. I don't know. But that's what I think I would do. Yeah, there are, you know, so I came to this long before pre-legalization in California and, like I say, in the middle of the HIV epidemic. And so this was a very common question. People who knew they were dying and it was all underground, but it happened a lot. And there were resources passed around on mimeograph sheets um, and formulas for this. And it doesn't always work. It's not as easy as some people think. But it did happen a lot and it did happen where you could talk to people and not be accused of, you know, accessory to murder or whatever it might mm -hmm. be. And so there was a whole network in the Bay Area among AIDS patients on how to do this. And uh, it did work a lot. And now online, you can still find a lot better information than was available then. So other questions we had here. Yeah, I appreciated your, your notion of, of um, focusing on agency at the end of life and having that be a priority for those who are in caretaking or, you know, social workers, physicians, whatever, in, in that role. And it's in contrast to, um, and I think it was you that said it, but what have you said something about, you may have your advanced directive, but in fact, the medical community may not honor it. Mm -hmm. And I was recently at a, at a small lecture where a physician was talking just about those things and um, talked about cases where the physicians would not honor the advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And her advice was to, <laughs> I thought about that tattoo, that tattoo is wonderful, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> um, but her advice was to hand write something different, something other than the form, mm -hmm. something that that had a personal mm. um, piece to it, mm -hmm. so that it was in your writing. And then mm -hmm. your family and, and the people appointed to make decisions for you had copies of that, your wish mm -hmm. that you could use. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that or talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think both probably could. I mean, uh, right. You're, the, one of the meta messages of, you know, of your point here is that it's not just about the form. I and mean, the form is this clerical piece that's helpful, but it's not the thing. It's not. Right. Um, and so these letters are sometimes will encourage people to, you know, with your iPhone or whatever, you can make recordings, you know, to hear someone in their own voice 
to you know to hear, have a doctor or a family member at the ICU at the bedside and have a voice mm-hmm. come over and say, "Hey, this is so and so, and I'm you know today is blah blah blah, and this is how I feel, and this is why I think it." You know, that's very compelling. That's not a legally protected document, but one of the reasons that these advanced directives don't get honored one is the old sort of the the cover your ass legal kind of thing. That in the old days it has felt like. God, well, we get sued if we don't try that gizmo. It's sitting right there. Why don't we try it? And they said they didn't want it, but you know, most people, you know, we're, we're better off erring doing the thing, even if they say they don't want it. Then we're less likely to be sued. I have a sense, and I don't know this to be true, that legal cases are mounting up in the other direction of people who stated their wishes, didn't have it honored, and then sued for them saving their life. I would love to see that pendulum swing a little bit. So there's some of this sort of legal cover your ass thing. But there's also beyond that, I mean, it does feel when you're at the bedside, when you're as a clinician, you've got these, you have these things that you know might help, might work. And you have signed these oaths and you have your own ideas of what life means and what it doesn't mean and your own role. I mean, it's just, it's really hard to be participating in someone dying sooner than they might have to. Is I don't mind that that's a challenge. I don't mind that that's a hard thing for clinicians to reckon with. I think there's a lot to say about it, but knowing that it's hard, if you can offer up this sort of complementary, contextualized, very personal information, again, it's not legally protected, but it's going to make a very big difference to that clinician going home at night knowing they did the right thing by pulling the plug or whatever mm. it is. So I do think if, that's, if, if, if you're advocating for that, you would certainly get agreement from us. These letters on the side that flesh it out, recordings, whatever it is. I want to ask you one last thing because it's a crucial part of all this and you have a great section in here about grief Mm. so there's anticipatory grief when you know a loss is coming and then there's just the grief of dealing with during and after there's a i I love this one uh sentence in here really grief denial fear at root they all have to do with longing if you stop and think about it Missing someone or something, fearing whatever might remove you from them, and rejecting the idea that you'll ever be a part or all expressions of appreciation. Realizing this link is helpful. It contextualizes the pain and sets us up to feel grateful to have ever had the health or ability or relationship in the first place. Mm. So gratitude. Gratitude, right? And you say, one of you say, one of the great things in the book, and they say at the beginning, is you, you have to guess who's writing which part if they're writing it together. So one of you said in there um, that in your experience and uh, that grief tends to resolve in a certain period of time. There's complicated grief, which lasts longer and is more difficult, but six months, something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. is that, that's it's one of the essential messages of hope, I think, in this. Because when you're in the middle of grief, it feels like it's forever. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it'll never end. But it does. It does. It shifts. It moves. I don't know about if it ends, but it certainly moves and becomes a source, can become a source of warmth because of that link to all that love and longing and appreciation. Mm-hmm. One of the things that religion is useful for is ritualizing this and... So many of us, especially out here in groovy California, are so unaffiliated with any kind of organized religion, or we've kind of come up with our own religion. Um, but, you know, I was just struck by how helpful it was to me um, 
to sit Shiva for my father and have a group of people just come and sit with me for seven days of intense grief. Um, And, you know, in that period, you're not expected to host. You don't have to make anybody any food or do anything. The expectation is that people will come to you and just be in a circle with you. And you could talk if you want to talk and tell stories or not. And that's a seven-day increment in which time you're not supposed to be functional at all, really. And then there's a 30-day increment when you're supposed to be kind of barely functional but not returning to work. And then you have a full year of recovery. And what I love about that is it's a staged grief process. You know, it's a recognition by the community that you are not well. You know, you, you have had a profound loss and you're recovering from it. Um, and so I think it, in a way we have to kind of recreate that for ourselves um, because we've lost so much of that sense of community enfolding us and, and taking care of us when we lose someone. Um, and there used to be all sorts of external, um, you know, externalizations of grief, you know, hanging crepe in the windows or wearing black or, you know, we've, and in the modern workplace, we've just kind of lost that, you know, people don't get t- paid time off after a loss and um, there's just no space to recover. So I think we have to recreate that together. It's the importance of ritual in a sense to tradition. So thank you both very much for coming here today. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with B.J. Miller and Shoshana Berger. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.